In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask that you be with us, O Lord, and you strengthen us, and you keep us, O Lord, in your peace. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we're going to start our next Q&A session. Uh, as always, if you would like to submit any questions, you can do so using the link that's on the slide. Um, the, the more questions we have, uh, the more interesting the Q&A sessions can be. Um, and of course, I need questions to be able to continue to have uh, these sessions on a weekly basis. So please, if you have any questions you'd like to submit, please, uh, please don't shy away. Please go ahead and, and, and submit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So the first question for today is, could you please explain Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8? Uh, and when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. What are vain repetitions? How do they differ from the Egbeya? If God already knows what you need, shall we not ask him for anything? Um, so to, to kind of get the context um, of this is uh, I'm going to start with just uh, read this. This is in Matthew chapter 6, starting from verse 5. So it says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand, to, to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the city that they may be seen by men. Uh, assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then it goes on and says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions and so on. Um, then at the end of this passage, starting in verse nine, uh, then it says in this manner, therefore pray. And then the Lord recites the Lord's prayer. He gives them, teaches them the Lord's prayer, uh, after this passage. Okay. So what is he, what is the purpose of this, uh, passage here of what the Lord is saying to the people? He is warning them from being hypocritical in prayer. Uh, which is what the Pharisees were doing. In the, the Pharisees, they wanted uh, to receive honor and respect from the people. And so for that reason, they would always want to put on a show, would always want to appear righteous and holy and, um, and prayerful and fasting. So they would, they would fast in a way to, so that everyone would know that they were fasting. They'd disfigure their faces intentionally to make it look like they were very uh, ascetic and, and, and kind of like malnourished from the severity of the fasting, they would be fasting so that people would, would look at them and say, wow, look at their asceticism, look at their discipline, look at their, you know, um, the faith that they have, that they are, you know, disciplining themselves so severely, like in, in, in a very ascetic way. The same is true with prayer. They would go on street corners, they would go into places that would be the most uh, public, and they would stand in prayer, they would act showy, they would be dressed in a very showy way, um, and so on. And so here the Lord is rebuking them and he is warning the people. He's saying, don't be like this, right? Don't, don't go and, and put on a show, right? Uh, don't pretend to be pious and holy so that you would receive praise. That's not the goal of, of prayer. That's not the goal of anything, the spiritual life. The, the spiritual life is, is before God and not before man, okay? Um, so the, the prayers that they were praying because they were not sincere prayers, right? They were not actually prayers where it was, had any connection with God in the prayer. They had, the, the, the goal of the prayer, it wasn't really a prayer. The goal of the prayer was simply to be seen, right? It was not authentic. It was not done in the spirit, right? It was done simply to be seen, okay? And so that's why the Lord says, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your father who was in the secret place. Right. If someone is to pray, right, it doesn't, this is not trying to say that prayer in public is wrong. Like, you know, we go to the church, right, we pray and we, people see us praying, right? The, the, the goal here is not to say that the only kind of valid prayer is prayer that's in secret, but it's saying the true prayer 
right, is one that is between you and God that is not intended to be seen. So whether we are in the church and we are being seen, we are not praying for the purpose of being seen. We are not praying because I want people to see me. And, and actually, um, maybe sometimes we don't, we fail to do this. Maybe sometimes we are thinking about what, what, how people see me, right? In which case the same applies to us, right? So um, because our goal is we don't want to be seen, we don't care about being seen, but people, our prayer is to God, right? So for these Pharisees who are doing this, in order for them to put on the show, right, they would say many words. And maybe a lot of the things that they were saying were repetitive words. The, the issue here is not the repetition. The, uh, the issue is why are you repeating, right? Because he called it vain repetition, right? Not just repetition, but vain repetition. Actually, what's interesting here, and this is why I wanted to read, you know, more of this context of this passage, is that in verse 9, when, it's, when, he, when he introduces the, and he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is a set of words, right, that he taught them to pray using these words. This is why, actually, we, we, we have the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father Prayer. We pray it um, all the time, and whether it be from the Agbeya, uh, whether it be personally in our homes, whether it be before we eat, whether it be in the church or before spiritual meetings or during any of the services that we have, any of the prayers that we have in the church, we pray the Lord's Prayer at least one time, you know, usually more. So, so this prayer, right, which is a prayer that we repeat, right, which is a prayer that is um, written, right, that we recite, is actually a prayer that came from Christ. It, it wasn't a prayer that was invented by a human being, right, to where you could point to it and say, well, look, didn't the Lord say we shouldn't be repeating our prayers, we shouldn't be just reciting prayers, no, uh, th that's not what he's saying. He he's not saying that the issue is the repetition. The issue is the vain repetition. The issue is the, the, the mentality of why is it, are you praying at all, right? You're praying for the purpose of being seen, not for the purpose of connecting with God and actually speaking to God, okay? And so these others, like he's saying, like the heathen, right? The pagans who... Um, their rituals and their religions is just a lot of repetition of words, but it's it's meaningless, it's fruitless, and there's nothing, there's, it's not, this is not um, magic, right? It's not incantations. It's not saying words because there's a certain formula where, you know, if you say a word a certain number of times, then somehow it, it, it you know, it, it, it activates the power of the prayer. No, because in, in Christianity, we believe in a personal God. So he is a God who is a person. So that means that he has a mind, he has a will. That means we speak to him as we speak to a person. We have a conversation with God, right? And that we believe that God understands us. And we believe that God hears our words, but more than just hearing our words, he knows our hearts. He knows what's inside of us. You know, in, in Isaiah, it speaks about how God responds to our prayer even before we ask him, okay? So the what it means to pray in Christianity is different than what would be meant by the idea of prayer and some of these other pagan religions when he says don't do like the heathen right don't do like the like these other people do they believe in casting spells they believe in if i say the certain words that certain things are going to happen right that's not what we believe we don't believe in any magic formula of words we don't believe that the lord's prayer is a magic spell we don't believe that somehow by reciting this prayer it guarantees anything right because it's a conversation right this is a conversation that we were having with christ and this is as, and we, we, when we pray, we are praying to him, right? We, we, we doesn't mean that we don't repeat things, right? Because the Lord taught them to repeat the Lord's prayer. We, we, we pray, but we try as much as we can to be praying with attention. We praying with our heart, praying with a desire to, to really connect with God and to be communicating to God and with God, right? In everything that we do in our prayer. <clears throat> Number two. Why is the book of Enoch accepted in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, but not in the Coptic? And should we read it? Okay. So the book of Enoch, okay, uh, the, the Ethiopian Church is actually the only church that canonized this book to be considered as part of the Bible. Okay. Um, the Old Testament books that the church accepts 
were the ones that were originally part of the Septuagint, right? So we have, we've discussed this a couple of times in the past, right? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the original Hebrew books of the Old Testament. And because the original Hebrew has been lost, the, the Septuagint is the, is the earliest and the most correct translation of the original Hebrew which is why we consider the Old Testament Septuagint version to be authoritative, okay? So all of the books that was in this Septuagint is what we accept to be as part of the canon of the Old Testament in the church. And this includes the deuterocanonical books, which are those books that you wouldn't find in like a Protestant Bible, but that in the Orthodox uh, churches, we accept them as being canonical, just like all of the other Old Testament books. So the book of Enoch, is not one of those books that was translated to Greek in the Septuagint version, okay? Um, and actually, it is widely accepted by historians that the book of Enoch, okay, does not really contain the actual words of Enoch, right? Who is Enoch? Enoch, if you read in Genesis chapter 5, okay, um, there is the genealogy of Adam, okay? And in this genealogy, uh, it mentions this man, Enoch, okay? And so based on this chronology, okay, Enoch would have lived several thousand years earlier than the first known appearance of this book of Enoch, right? So if the book of Enoch was actually the words of Enoch, the man who's mentioned very, very early on, right? Then he, he would not, you know, the, the book would have been around from early. There would be some evidence that this book existed if it was actually written by Enoch, you know, but 2000 years later, several thousand years later, right? This is when, uh, this is when the first kind of appearance of the book is. And so we don't consider that Enoch, that the book is actually written by Enoch, okay? Most people believe that the book was written sometime uh, between the Old and New Testaments, which is called the intertestamental period, um, you, maybe somewhere between 150 and 80 BC, okay? What's interesting is that the book of Jude actually refers to uh, the, the, one of the things that was said in the book of Enoch, right? So if you, if you read in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, it says, now Enoch, okay, uh, or sorry, uh, yeah. So it says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them, against him. Okay, this is a quote. So Jude, St. Jude here, he is saying that the man Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam, which actually matches with the genealogy that you'll find in Genesis chapter 5. So you'll find Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, and then Enoch. So he is the seventh, right? He is the seventh. So, so this Enoch, the seventh of Adam, from Adam, here Jude is saying that this quote is attributed to him, okay? If you look in the book of Enoch, okay, you will find in chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Behold, he comes with the myriads of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to destroy all the wicked and to convict all the flesh for all the wicked deeds they have done and the proud and hard words that wicked sinners spoke against him. Very, very close, right? Uh, tra uh, here translation uh, matches what uh, is quoted by Jude and Jude attributes this quote to Enoch, okay? Um, there's actually other writings in, in the church that refer to Enoch, referred to this book of Enoch. In the early second century, um, there is a book called the Epistle of Barnabas. It references the book of Enoch, as well as other second and third century church fathers like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, Clement of Alexandria. All of those refer to the book of Enoch, okay? So what is this saying? Well, it doesn't mean, just because something is not in the Bible, it doesn't mean that it's 100% wrong or 100% bad or, or even that we shouldn't read it, right? The, the, there, are, there are writings in the church that are not, you know, like for instance, the writings of the church fathers. 
the writings of the church fathers are not canonical, meaning they're not part of the Bible, but it doesn't mean that we reject those writings. It just means that we don't consider them to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means that there could be errors and mistakes in them. Um, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not useful to read or that it's not beneficial to read. It doesn't mean that it's full of falsehoods necessarily. It just means that we don't consider it to be um, biblical, or in this case, we, we don't consider it to be biblical, meaning part of the canon of the Bible, meaning inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and in this case, also, we don't consider it to be attributed to um, the, this book is not, is not attributed to Enoch himself. Now, here, Jude is saying that this specific quote was said by Enoch. So in that case, we believe that, like, we believe that this quotation was indeed said by Enoch, right? Because Jude quotes him, but that doesn't, that quote is not validating the entire book of Enoch as being the words of Enoch, okay? So in the, when the church, uh, when the church convened uh, the ecumenical council, the first ecumenical council, okay, in Nicaea, um, and, and they discussed um, the, the, which books would be considered part of the Christian canon of scripture, which is what would become the Bible, okay? So there was a discussion about all these different books in the Old Testament uh, and whether each one would be considered inspired by the Holy Spirit, should be considered part of the Bible or not. And the book of Enoch was one of those that was discussed, okay? And it was rejected um, from being part of the Bible in the first ecumenical council, okay? What are some reasons? Well, one, we said, that we don't believe it's actually attributed to Enoch um, because it, it was not written at the time that Enoch lived. But there's some things in it that we don't approve or we don't, we don't accept. So I'll, I'll give you an example. In Genesis 6, verse 4, I'll read you this verse. It says, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okay? What is this? Why is this important? We understand in the church, we understand this verse to have the following meaning. Okay? So the sons of God, so, so it's saying the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children. And these were like mighty men. Okay? Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? Okay? So... The sons of God refers to those who obeyed God, those who followed God. And, and at the time, the line of Seth, so remember, Seth was one of the sons of Adam and Eve. And he was a righteous man, and his lineage was righteous. His lineage were people who feared God. So, so the sons of God, we believe, refers to the line of Seth, okay? The daughters of men, on the other hand, right, the idea if the sons of God is referring to the children of God, the daughters of men are then referring to not the people who are the fear, fearing God, but the wicked, okay? And so who is it that was wicked? It was Cain. Cain and his lineage were wicked. So we believe that this verse is referring to the children of Seth or the lineage of Seth marrying into the lineage of Cain, Okay. And that the and, and the kind of the product of those two was what's being discussed here um, in Genesis six verse four. This is the the church's belief and understanding of this verse. Now, there are other people that believe that the the uh, sons of God here is not referring to men, but are referring to angels, and that somehow angels had a sexual relationship with human beings and that the product of this relationship was a race of giants who were mighty on the earth, um, which they used to explain the existence of giants and things like that in the time uh, of, uh, you know, of Israel. Like for instance, the Goliath is a giant, the sons of Anak, there's like, there's a lot of giants that are mentioned uh, in the scripture. And, and kind of like the explanation is that there was this race of giants that came through this union between these angels and these human beings. And this race, they call them the Nephilim, okay, the Nephilim. We reject this understanding and this interpretation of this passage, okay? Because angels cannot have a sexual relationship. Actually, when Christ was speaking to 
the Pharisees about the relationship between uh, married couples, people who are married, right, on earth. What is their relationship in heaven? Uh, in Matthew 22, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven, right? Which means that there is no sexual relationship in heaven. There is no sexual relationship among the angels. It is not possible for the angels to have any sexual relationship or to conceive or to, you know, to, to have children or to conceive children with anyone, okay? So we reject that understanding, okay, of that verse. So why is that important here? Enoch, and this is in Enoch chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read it for you. It says, and it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days uh, were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children, right? So what's quoted here in the book of Enoch actually matches the Nephilim interpretation, which we reject, okay? So if this is an error, okay, this, what is written here is an error, then that means that this cannot be inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so we do not consider it to be canonical, okay? So um, I, won't, I won't say that it's wrong to read this book. We can read it, right? But we read it with the understanding that um, it, is, it, it doesn't mean that everything in it is correct, Read it with the understanding that this these words might not be attributed really to Enoch at all. Uh, and so we can we just have that understanding as we read and we understand more about these different, you know, uh, texts. Uh, the idea of why it was accepted by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, um, I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Like I'm not sure why specifically the Ethiopian Orthodox Church accepts it. We follow uh, what the first ecumenical council decided. And that's why we, we do not accept it. <clears throat> there is a verse in Exodus 14, 14, that says, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. I am sure that this verse doesn't encourage passiveness, but I would like some clarification on when should we expect that God is going to fight for us and when should we take action to defend our rights if we are not treated fairly or if we are hurt by someone. Okay, so certainly God never calls us to be passive right, but to always be active, and actually we are workers together with God, right, we, we, God calls us to work with him, in verse Corinthians 3, verse 9, it says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building, right, we are, we are the fellow workers of God, meaning God does not just sit back and, you know, like do everything, and he tells, or he, he doesn't just do everything and tells us to sit back and do nothing, right, if, 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 God is to work in the world, then a big part of the things that he does, he does it through human beings. He does it through the church, okay? Uh, a good example of this is a battle that the Israelites had where Joshua was leading the battle, okay, in the field. He was fighting with the people, and Moses was on a mountain praying. And every time that Moses would drop his hands and he would stop praying, uh, Joshua and the army would begin to lose. And every time he would raise his hand again to pray, they, they would win, okay? Conversely, you could say, well, if Joshua and the people never even went out to the battle, and if it was only Joshua, uh, it was only Moses praying by himself, they also would not have won. There was, they, wouldn't, they would have just been slaughtered because they would not have been fighting, right? So it's kind of a, a, shows us the, the relationship between the, the work of God and the work of man, right? And both are necessary, okay? Um, so we should always be working, right? We should always be using our minds. We should always be doing whatever is in our power to do. So for instance, if I am wronged in some way, then I should be working to correct it, right? If, if, if there is something that needs to be done, I should be working to, to accomplish it, right? Not just saying, well, I'm not doing anything and I'm just gonna let God do it. No, we are called to do, right? But there are some things that God tells us not to do, right? So one, one example of that is revenge. God says, do not revenge, right? So even though there might be uh, practical things that we could do to solve a problem that we have, to end an injustice, to, to do something, 
But if it is against the law of love, right, and this idea that God does not want us to take revenge, then God says, no, do not do it, okay? And instead, he says that he will do it. On Romans 12, verse 9, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, okay? So essentially, God is telling us, do everything in your power all the time, okay? But I am the one who is going to bring you success and victory. And the things that are forbidden for you to do, to bring justice and to get your rights for yourself, don't worry about those things because I will handle those things myself, okay? So um, it's, it's important for us to, to understand this principle. And, it, and, and we understand it in, the con in several contexts, in the context of, you know, like, how do we respond to injustice in the context of what do we, you know, how do we function in the world in the context of salvation as well? You know, God has done a great work of salvation without which we would not be saved. But he also calls us to do work as well. He calls us to, to take action based on what he has done for us in this uh, work of salvation. So God never calls us to be passive, right? Um, faith is an active thing, right? He, our faith should be motivating us to work motivating us to pray, motivating us to do something positive, right? Not simply to sit back and say, well, God is taking care of everything. Yes, there are many times when we say, well, God is the one who has to take care of it. That's because there's nothing in our hands. You know, things that are beyond our ability, those things, we say, well, I've done all that I can do. And so God is the one who needs to take action. God is the one who needs to defend. God is the one who needs to protect because I have no way to do that by myself. So definitely he is not saying the Lord will fight for you, so you should do nothing. He's saying the Lord shall fight for you. And in this context, in Exodus 14, this was, um, he was saying this to the Israelites when they were on the shore of the Red Sea about to be slaughtered by the Egyptians, right? They had no weapons. They had no place to run. There was nothing else they could do to defend themselves. So they kind of hit that point where it's like God is telling them, all you can do is hold your peace. I will fight for you. Don't do anything, okay? Because there's nothing for you to do. But in the context, in the cases where there is something for us to do, God calls us to do it, whatever is within our power, and he will also be working and he will grant us success according to his will. Number four. If someone compliments my work at church, I might say thank God or give God the glory. But uh, at at my office with non-believers, I just say, thank you. Likewise to Christians, I might say, see you tomorrow, God willing. But if I responded this way to my boss who asked me if I would be present for a meeting, I imagine he would not be too impressed. My being a hypocrite or missing out on an opportunity to evangelize. I might say these things to friends who are non-believers, but my boss slash coworkers are in a different category. Okay. So first of all, where do we get this concept of talking like this? Like, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times we use the terms, thank God and God, or nothing, uh, God willing to kind of mean no. Like somebody asks us to do something and we say, God willing, what we really mean is no. Okay. Um, and we just don't want to say no, but we're just kind of like dumping it on God. Like, well, you know, maybe God doesn't will. Okay. And that's the reason I won't do it, which of course is not right because it's, it's not, it's not on God. It's on us, whether we choose to do something or not. Um, but uh, where do we get this idea of saying God willing, like, you know, in, in our language? In James chapter 4, this is verse, starting from verse 13. It says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So here, St. James is making it clear. It's like we shouldn't be like when we make a, when we make plans, right, about the future, right? When we make some decision about the future, we shouldn't assume that we are in control of the future or there is going to be a future for us, right? Instead, we say, this is what I plan to do as the Lord wills. If the Lord wills it, right, this is what I choose to do. If the Lord allows it, this is what I do. 
So in always keeping in our mind the idea that we are not the ultimate ultimate deciders, you know, of what is going to happen, but we uh, always keep in our mind that God is the one who is um, deciding, you know, our futures. What is it? What is it that He will allow? And what What is it that He will not allow? Um, so the the intention here is not so much in the language, right? But in the belief and understanding that everything we do must be permitted by God, and our language is a reflection of that belief. Okay, not to believe that anything is assured, right? But according to God's permission. So that way, when we say God willing, or when we say thank God, we're like attributing everything to God. Every good thing that that I come that comes to me, thank God. Uh, I make a certain decision, and I will do this. God willing, if God allows. Okay. But at the same time, we need to be discerning in how people understand our speech in everything, not just in this, right? Communication is intended to communicate some idea to another person, you know? So you have to speak in a language that that other person can understand or else the communication is going to be misunderstood, right? And then this applies in a lot of ways. Like, you know, we speak about how there's five love languages. If I'm trying to communicate love to a person in a language they don't understand, then they're not going to receive the message. I might be sending the message. They're not going to receive the message. If I talk to someone in Chinese, when they don't speak Chinese, then even though I might be giving a great lecture about something, uh, giving you know a great sermon about something, giving great information, communicating something amazing, and yet because it's in Chinese, they're not going to understand what I have to say, right? So even while we are um, trying to fulfill the command of God, okay, we should be understanding how is it what I'm saying is going to be communicated to somebody around me, okay? Um, and, and sometimes using this language might give the wrong impression, like according to what the person asking the question is saying. If all I do is I use a phrase like God willing, and that's it, you know, maybe, and I've heard this from several people um, as well, like people will think that what I'm really saying is no, or giving some excuse as to why I'm not going to do the work, because somehow, oh, well, if it doesn't make it done, it's actually because God didn't want it to be done, right? Um, but when I have a relationship with someone, and it could be like in a work context like this, in a work relationship, my reputation, okay, of getting work done, doing something at work is not going to be 100% based on this phrase, God willing, that I say in my sentences. It's going to be based on my character. It's going to be based on, on, on how hard I work. It's going to be based on you know, their experience with me and my work, you know, like, like if I'm a person who says God willing, and then I don't do my work, then yeah, maybe they'll interpret God willing to me. No, but if I'm a person that always gets my work done, and I'm always a very hard worker, and then I'm using the language God willing, then actually it, it, it has a different meaning, right? Like you couldn't interpret that to mean no, you could interpret that to mean an excuse, because I'm not making excuses, I always do my work, and it's always good quality and so on, right? So it's really up to us to make the people around us to understand what do we mean, right? What is it that we mean? And, and it's really not just about the language that I use, but it's about who I am, how I choose to live, right? Um, so this can be a very good opportunity for evangelism because um, I, I'm, I'm making my faith known without preaching, you know, without pushing any ideas on anyone without, you know, even reading from the Bible or doing anything. It's just part of my own, like I'm exposing part of my own thinking that I personally think to the world around me. And then when I'm consistently doing good and right and, and, and I'm a hard worker and so on, then they will associate my good work with the idea of my faith, right? Think about other religions. You know, sometimes as Christians, we become very timid, right? Think about like Islam, for instance. Islam... Okay, they are called to pray five times a day. And regardless of where they are, whether they're at home, at work, in an airport, in the middle of the road, okay, when it comes time for the prayer, you will find Muslims in every country in the world just stop in the middle of everything that they're doing and they have a prayer rug and they, 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 they look toward Mecca and they begin to pray, okay? And if you've ever seen it like in Egypt or other like Muslim nations, Literally, they will like do it in the middle of the street, okay? And in some places, they will block the road and block the cars, you know, and they would, they would, they would pray. If you've ever seen airports, like uh, certain places where there's a place for them to pray, or in different businesses, actually, 
like some have have allowed like this to so the point is is that there are people who have belief systems that are very different maybe from the people around them but they are not afraid to express themselves as they are like this is who i am this is what i believe uh and, and actually that in that case like to 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 do that it's like you have to stop working you know you have to stop working and to go and do that in this like in the context here we're, we're just saying just two words that you're going to say in the middle of your sentence right so we have to you know while while it's true that we have to make sure that people understand us and what is it that we mean but we should also not be afraid of being who we are and we have to ask ourselves is it is it that i really think that maybe someone misunderstands me or i'm just afraid that they might judge me i'm afraid that they, what they might think of me if they if they hear me seeing saying these words and you know what even if they misunderstand it but then they see that the work gets done and then the next time i say it they misunderstand it but then they see that the work gets done after a while they're going to under they're going to understand it's not going to be misunderstood forever right and if they're going to they're going to they're going to understand me once they understand me they understand the context of what i'm saying okay so we shouldn't be timid in expressing our faith or, or afraid of judgment afraid of persecution um St. Paul said that our speech should reflect like our desire to obey God, right? Rather than the desire to please men. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, it says, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts, right? Now, St. Paul was speaking about sharing the gospel. And, I, and I, we're not even talking about going to our workplaces and sharing the gospel. We're talking about our normal mode of language that in every other context we use to reflect the faith that we believe that God is in control and that we are seeking to please God and that we are not preaching to anyone. We are not opening the Bible and reading it to anyone. We are not giving a sermon. We're not inviting people to church. We're not doing anything. All we're saying is um, this is the way that I speak. And this is a reflection of my faith, right? So as we speak, right, we need to be honest with ourselves. Yes, we need to be mindful of how we're understood, but that should not be a reason why to cause us to completely change our language, you know, as a result, and not to be afraid of what might happen if we speak the truth. Number five, was God okay with men marrying multiple wives in the old testament or with men having concubines were there commandments against this if so did god punish men when they broke the commandments so no god was not okay with this uh, from the very beginning marriage was sacred and holy and that's why even in the garden of eden when god is speaking about uh, marriage he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it was a very intimate and a very exclusive relationship, right? That they would be one flesh, that they would be set apart from all, all everyone else, okay? Um, you know, so it, it was important for even from the beginning that this there be this idea of monogamy and that the marriage would be considered between one man and one, one woman, okay? Actually, as one of the requirements of choosing a king that Moses spoke about to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, okay, this is in Deuteronomy 17, speaking about this candidate who would be chosen a king, it says, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself, right? So even, even in the requirements of like choosing a leader or someone who is an important position, right? should be someone who doesn't have multiple wives, should not multiply wives for himself, okay? But, but in practice, we see, you know, examples in the old, all throughout the Old Testament where people married multiple wives, okay, and had concubines and, and so on, even from the people of God, like Abraham, uh, you know, like Jacob, like, like a lot of these people. So to kind of get a better understanding of that, we can look at another example of something else that God had permitted uh, in the Old Testament, not because it was good, but as a concession. Because remember, in the Old Testament, right, God gave commands to the people, okay, 
that they should live by them. But they were unable to live by them. They were unable to live by many of the commands, uh, you know, all the law of Moses. They, they were unable to live, right? So, so in practice, we don't see people living according to the commandment of God. It doesn't mean that God approves of that, right? And that God had mercy on them because of their weakness. Uh, and, and a perfect kind of example of this is when you read about uh, the, the, the commandments on divorce, okay, and remarriage. And we read them from the words of Christ, okay? So this is Christ, he's speaking in Matthew 19. Uh, he says, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, male and female, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Okay, so this is the same like we were reading before. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So, so the people responded to Christ and said, well, if marriage is unbreakable, like you're saying, if no man shall separate what God has put together, why is it that, it that Moses gave some kind of guideline for divorce that so you can give a certificate of divorce to your wife and be divorced? Okay. So then Christ is going to respond here. Okay. In verse eight, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So here we see an explanation of why it appears that God was allowing something in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it actually wasn't allowed. Okay. It's not because the commandment changed. It's because God's expectation of the people changed. God knew because of the weakness right, of the people in the Old Testament, that they were not able to follow his commandment. He didn't change his commandment to accommodate that. He didn't, he didn't say, well, because you can't do this, I'm not going to ask you to do it. Oh, it was still a sin. It was still a sin to have multiple wives. It was still a sin to divorce. It was still a sin. But, but God had mercy on the people and didn't call them out on it to judge them for it because he knew that they were weak, okay? But in the New Testament, right? We as believers have the Holy Spirit who is able to work in us, to transform us, to make us live as a spiritual instead of as the fleshly, the carnal, right? And so we are able to, to follow God's commandments in a way that the people in the Old Testament were not, okay? So was it breaking of the commandment of God? Yes, it was breaking of the commandment, okay? But God did not... Uh, punish them for this because he knew that they were weak, okay? And, and, and the solution was not punishment. The solution was salvation, right? The solution was that God makes a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to change our nature so that we no longer have to live according to the flesh so that we are able to fulfill his commandments, right? And this shows us the love and compassion of God. You know, he didn't look at us who were living in sin and unable to change and condemn us to destruction. Instead, he made a way for us to be able to do what he's asking. Okay. Um, and that's what we see in the New Testament. And here we see in Christ's own words himself, what it is that he did for us. Number six. Why does the Coptic church have the Igbeya for praying five times a day? So... So first of all, the prayers are seven times, not five times. But um, the church, the church is interested in setting up uh, systems to help its people grow spiritually, right? The church wants her children to grow spiritually, and so in order for us to grow spiritually, one of the very important things that we need to do is to pray. You know, like the church has a system for fasting because fasting is important. The church has a system for confession because confession is important. The church offers us all the sacraments, right? And so one of the things that we are called to do, that God asks us to do, is to pray, okay? So to help us to pray, right, instead of it just being just a commandment saying we should pray, okay, yes, we should pray, but in, in what way should we pray? Like give us some more guidance on how to keep us consistent in prayer, okay?
So the church put together a, a rule of prayer, a book of prayer called the book of the hours. That's what Igbeya means. Igbeya is a Coptic word that means according to the hours. Okay. So the prayer is divided up into seven prayers that are to be prayed various times during the day. And these are the first hour, the third, the sixth, the ninth, the 11th, the 12th, and the midnight hour. Okay. Um, the, the first hour starts at 6 a.m., right? And then the third hour is at 9, the sixth hour is at noon, the ninth hour is at 3, 11th hour is at 5, the 12th hour is at 6 p.m., uh, and then the midnight watches are throughout the night. Now, it's okay if we can't pray to all of these prayers, right? Because this is, um, this is available to us, but maybe not all of us are able to do this. Um, and it's okay also if we do not pray the prayers at the exact hours that are uh, mentioned here, the exact times that are mentioned, okay? There's also an eighth prayer uh, for the monks. It's like exclusively for the monks to pray. It's called the prayer of the veil. So why do we have these seven prayers? Well, it's based on Psalm 119, verse 164, where King David was saying, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. So he was saying seven. This was not literally the number seven. This was like the number seven represents perfection uh, in, in the Bible. So he's saying seven times a day, like I'm constantly praying, I'm like unceasingly praying, right? But we take it as being a good guideline of the number seven that we are going to have seven times of prayer in the day and that each of these prayers is um, is written out for us so that we can, you know, be more successful in praying them, that we can follow them, that we can have a guide, right? So the purpose of the Igbeya is to help us to develop a stronger prayer life, but not to be the only prayer that we pray. Like the Igbeya is not designed to be the only thing that we pray. It's designed to be a way to teach us to pray, right? All the different types of prayer in it to teach us to pray so that when we pray on our own, our prayers are deeper, our, deepers, our, our, our prayers are more meaningful, our prayers are longer, our prayers um, have all of the elements, right, of prayer that God calls us to pray. You know, like some different elements, thanksgiving, you know, giving thanks to God in all things glorification, glorifying God and praising him for who he is, okay? Praying for other people and their weakness and their struggles, praying for ourselves, praying from scripture, like using the Psalms, right? As part of our prayer, using the words of God in prayer is very powerful. Praying for our salvation, praying for protection, praying for deliverance, praying for God to intervene in the world, uh, prayer for um, repentance, prayer for, you know, for so many things, right? And, and when we when we, when we read the Igbeya and we look at the words of the Igbeya, it teaches us the models of prayer that we should use. Now, like I mentioned before about Christian prayer, the Igbeya is not magic. The Igbeya is not just like a sequence of words that if we say them, the magical things are going to happen. No, the pr prayer is a conversation. And as we pray with the Igbeya, it should be a conversation. We should be thinking about what we're saying to God and the words should be coming from us. Okay. So this is why the church puts a book of prayer. It's something very beneficial to us in our spiritual life. Okay. I think this probably will be the last question we have time for today. Um, how do you have a conversation with someone who is Christian, but they have secular political views that go completely contrary to our Christian faith? So of course, politics is a very polarizing issue, right? Um, the first thing that we have to keep in mind is that we shouldn't fall into the trap of categorizing ourselves according to a political party, okay? Because no political party is going to, is, is, is going to line up with our faith and our beliefs as Orthodox Christians, okay? That there isn't, because, because the only party that exists is the party of Christ. For us, the only, the only party, the only political party is a party that promotes the commandments of God, right? And there isn't one. There, there isn't one in the world, okay? There is no political party that lines up with what God wants us to do and what God commands us to do. So when, when, when I say I vote for this candidate or I vote for this candidate, okay, as, as Orthodox Christians, we are not saying that I fully support everything that this candidate says, 
or I fully support everything that that candidate says, if we are being faithful to our Christian faith, okay, if we are being faithful to our Christian faith, that isn't what we could be saying, right? So you have different options. One option is say, well, I'm just not going to participate in the political process at all because the people that are there don't line up with my beliefs. That's, of course, everyone is free to do that. But what, what I feel uh, is more uh, beneficial is to pick the issues that we feel are the closest to what we believe, uh, whichever candidate, you know, uh, is for the things that are the closest to what we believe and to promote that. Okay. Um, so the, you know, the, the, that is not to say that there is necessarily a clear cut answer about who to vote for still, and everyone is going to have a different opinion about which one is the closest. Okay. Um, but right now, because we have a two party system, okay. And they're pretty polarized to the extremes. Okay. So it's hard for people who are in the middle somewhere to find a place to really uh, associate themselves, to really like be affiliated with, okay? So it's important to differentiate uh, that the political parties are not religions and that Christianity does not support any political party. Um, and there are many things that the political parties believe that has nothing to do with things that the church cares about. Like, so for instance, Republicans believe that having a small government and less taxes is, is, is a better way to govern and better for the economy. Whereas Democrats, they think that there should be higher taxes, bigger government, more government programs and welfare to give money directly to the people, uh, like the, the, the poor, like the lower classes, the middle class, so that that would improve the economy. There's different approaches. Like the goal is to have a good economy, but they're like very opposite approaches to the way to do that. The church has no opinion about that. Like, like each of us as individuals might have an opinion about what we think is better or worse, but that is not something that's from God. That's not, that's not a moral issue. That's not a, that's not a, 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 a issue of faith. There's nothing to do. God never is going to tell us whether he wants the big government or the small government. Okay. And, and sadly, uh, a lot of people um, that are very religious and are very political, try to turn political issues into religious issues. Okay. And I, and, and that's dangerous. Okay. Because, we, we can't try to pretend like God is saying what it is that I want, you know, instead we are hearing from him what he wants. And there's some things he's silent about and some things that's not really, doesn't really matter from his perspective, right? Like, okay, which is the one. Okay. So there's some issues in politics that the church has no stance on whatsoever. Okay. There are other issues, however, that are very important issues that the church of course has a stance Right? So I'll give you an example of like abortion. Abortion is the killing of unborn humans. That is what we believe as a church. It is the killing of humans that have yet to be, un, uh, yet to be born. And in some cases, actually those who have been born. Okay? But for the most part, we'll just stick to the unborn. Okay? Um, Republicans are generally against abortion on the grounds that it is killing a, a human being. Whereas Democrats are focused more on the right of a woman to choose and that is her body, uh, she chooses to have an abortion or not to make free will decisions about her body, okay? Um, so in that sense, I can say without bias that the Republican view when it comes to abortion is, is, is more closely matching the church's stance and, the, and God's commandments about murder than the Democrat, okay? On the other hand, and I've heard this from, from people who I've spoken with, um, Democrats believe that uh, the, the, Democrat, uh, the Democrat party is more focused on giving to the poor, right? And treating the, the, the poor with respect and helping them out of like the bad situation that they're in, okay? Whereas the Republicans don't, don't focus as much on that. And actually they'll argue that a lot of the welfare programs that the Democrats want to create are actually causing long-term damage and not helping those people to like come up out of the situation they're in or so on. And, and, and you can argue all of that, but that's not my point. My point is, is that a person who is an Orthodox Christian who chooses to vote for the Democrat party could be thinking in their mind that this is an important issue for them, which does line up with Christian principles, the idea that we want to serve the poor. Okay. Um, 
So I'll just use those two basic examples just as a, as a general principle, okay? The idea of abortion, that's kind of like a pro-Republican stance and the, the, the Democrats, as far as desiring to serve the poor um, as a pro-Democrat stance, right? I'm just gonna use those two just for the sake of this conversation that we have, okay? So you could have people potentially from each, from, orth from orthodoxy that are focusing on one or the other. It doesn't mean that every single thing about the candidate or every single thing about the political party they approve of, okay? But for them, it's, this is all a compromise, right? This is all a compromise. There is no party that matches what we believe. So one person feels like this is the more, this is the closer, and this is the biggest issues that um, I wanna go toward. And another person says, no, these other issues here, I believe are the most important issues that I wanna vote for, okay? So just because you have, for instance, a person who is Orthodox who votes as a Democrat, doesn't mean that they support abortion, doesn't mean they support every other view that the Democrat party has, but it's for many not an easy decision because you, you have these conflicting, um, these conflicting ideals, these conflicting morals, these conflicting ideas and so on, okay? Um, so it's important for us when we're talking to each other, okay, to focus on the issues, you know? The idea of which party we vote for, for in the end is actually not as important as the issues. For instance, what do we believe about abortion? What do we believe about, you know, the legality of drugs? Okay. What do we believe about these different things? Okay. When it comes to moral issues, when it comes to things related to, to God, okay. What do we believe about those things? Okay. Let's agree on that. Okay. Let's agree on that. We're not going to agree on who we should vote for, nor should it be a political discussion in the church, but let's focus on the things that we all have in common which are the things that God commands us to live a certain way and to have certain beliefs on and, and agree on that, okay? If someone chooses to vote Democrat, someone chooses to vote Republican, it's not gonna be because, or it should not be because they disagree on that. It should be based on all the other stuff that you know, either is agnostic, it's like, it's not gonna be something that God cares about, or it's gonna be that you have to make a compromise and nothing is perfect, okay? So neither party matches our faith, okay? Um, and so when speaking to Christians, we should try to focus on those specific issues and not to try to turn it into a big political debate about everything. Okay, just focus on the issues that God has a say in. So that when we have an argument about something, we can say, this is not my opinion. Look, in this verse here in the Bible, it says such and such and such. This is why this is the true view. This is the right view. Not everything is our opinion. You know, and that's one of the issues that we have in our society today and in the church is that we, we've turned everything to be a personal opinion. There are some things that are not our opinion. This cannot be our opinion. It cannot be my opinion whether abortion is okay or not. That is not an opinion. That is something God has told us very clearly, okay, about what it is. It is not based on what I think. Honestly, nobody cares. I mean, God does not care what I think about it, right? So, so he told us what is true. So if for the things that we, you know, we receive from God, we, we hold on to those things as true, right? Then I would say this is, you know, as good as we can get when it comes to this question of political views, okay? Because we don't go to the extent of telling people how to vote. All we do is we say, this is what these different candidates and these different parties believe, and everyone has to make a decision, right? Based on the things that God has said and based on the other things, right? Because no, no party exactly matches our faith, okay? Um, somebody posted a question. Uh, when St. Peter and St. John went to the temple at the time of the ninth hour to pray one time, does it mean the Jews have corresponding prayers to the Igbe prayers, or are they different? Uh, yes, actually. The, actually, the Igbeya, the idea of praying at the different times of the day, came from the Jewish tradition, because the Jews had different times and hours of prayer that they prayed, okay? And we've kind of, like, in the church, we kind of inherited that, because... Remember, the church is an extension of Judaism. Christianity is an extension of Judaism. All the apostles, they were Jews, right? The disciples. So they, when, when the church began, if you remember, even after, they, after the resurrection, the apostles for a time were still going to the synagogue. Like they were still practicing like the Jewish tradition in the synagogue, right? Of course, they were preaching Christianity, but there was this natural transition that happened. 
So a lot of the elements and things that were happening uh, in uh, the Jewish faith was kind of carried over into Christianity, including having these different set times um, for prayer. Okay. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Um, God willing, we can continue next week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, God, for spending this time with us and for protecting us. Teach us your ways, O Lord, and help us to be pleasing to you in all things. Grant us your peace and grant us understanding and grant peace and healing to all of your people around the world. Grant us, O Lord, to be seeking you, to know you more and more each day, and to be living a life for your glory. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here's as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a great night.